I'm James Gomes, and I'm back because I recently reread Siddhartha again. <laughs> which you which you threaten to do and do every year. How, how many years has this been of reading Siddhartha? Almost positive the first year I read it was 2010. It's very okay. it's very possible that I might have done like where I read it twice in three year stretch and I kind of forgot like if I read it in you know like January or December. So it's very possible that I might have missed a year once or twice. But for the most part, it's kind of like a ritual I, I typically do once a year. And I and I do usually do it around the new year. How did the book feel this time? What did the read feel like? So there's been a transition each I would say the last maybe three to four years, maybe a little bit more, I've become more and more critical of the main character, Siddhartha. And I think, uh, I think that's maybe been magnified this last reading. What is the thing, uh, so when you, critical of, as in maybe once upon a time, you can think back to a time when you had total and complete sympathy for this character. Like this character for whom the book is named, this is the hero. What are some of the things or the one thing that particularly you think started to feel jarring this time where you're like, I don't think this character is as great as I thought he was. Yeah. So I would say I originally read it and kept reading it because I wanted to be more like Siddhartha. Okay. Now it was like a hero. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Or just like someone that, that I thought had, a really good understanding, a really good perspective. I don't necessarily think he has a bad understanding or a bad perspective, but now uh, I don't want to be Siddhartha. The last like maybe two or three readings, I've realized that I want to be Vasudevid, the uh, ferryman. And so I think I think that even shines a little brighter this this last reading. I'm I'm even considering doing something wild next year. I might not read it. That, I, I don't know what you're saying. What you just said doesn't even compute my brain. What do you mean? It's been since 2010. This is a ritual. But when it couldn't you read it, would you? could you read it now? The ferryman shows up a few times, and he shows up once, and he's like a, seems like a toss-off character, but then it circles back, and he becomes very important because Siddhartha finds him again, and he's in a different place mentally when he sees his ferryman, and he thinks about the ferryman, and he lives with the ferryman, and starts doing the ferryman's job with him. Couldn't you read the book next time with the expectation? Well, the story starts with this one character, but I'm waiting for the character that shows up in the back third of the book. Yeah, or, you know, or I think uh, the last two years, I this this may be a big influence in how I've I've shifted my perspective of the book. The last two years, I read a chapter a day, so I read the book over twelve days, which I've probably never done the entire time that I've been reading Siddhartha. So that maybe that's slowing down the pace of reading and being able to think about each chapter a decent amount for one day before I move on with the story probably helps me to see the story differently. So maybe so maybe this year I will just do like a one shot, just sit down and read the book in one sitting and just kind of experience it that way and, and see, see how it goes. What do you like? What did you in this pass or these past few passes where you're like, I'm starting to look at the ferryman as a character I like? What about the ferryman contrasted with Siddhartha do you find attractive now? Yeah, a few things. So he's the fact that this this kind of ties back to what we've discussed with with Tolstoy. But the ferryman is not an educated man. He's it's unclear what his cast is exactly. 
but he seems to be peasant-ish. He's not, he's, he's illiterate at least. And so he's able to figure out what, you know, how to be a good person, how to appreciate things. And then he's a good listener, which I am trying to become myself. And, (laughs) and then he's, he's a little more forgiving. He is more, or I guess less strict than Siddhartha. So he will push Siddhartha in a way that Siddhartha doesn't seem to, to go out of it. Like Siddhartha just seems so, so focused on himself and so focused on this idea that he can't teach or pass on wisdom to anyone that he doesn't even try. He, he just seems like oblivious to anyone else. And he's just like doing his own thing. I think that's probably the thing that's turned me off on Siddhartha the most is, I mean, I get it. Like if I want someone to change, it doesn't really matter how bad I want or how, or what I do. I can't like make someone else change, but there's, there's got, there, there has to at least be nudges that people can do. There has to be things that people can do to help. So this idea, okay, I'm kind of rambling a bit, but Siddhartha like abandons his son or, or doesn't abandon his son abandons him. Siddhartha never goes back. Siddhartha could have moved back to the town with his son. Siddhartha could have checked on him. Siddhartha, I mean, there's so many other things, but Siddhartha came to this idea that just like my dad couldn't help me, I can't help him and just kind of is done right. with it. Let, let me set the because the story's modeled a bit on the Buddha, the Siddhartha, the actual Buddha. There's always this confusion. The character's name is Siddhartha. Siddhartha is a name of the actual Buddha. But Siddhartha meets the Buddha in the story, so they're like not the same person. But he has the same thing. He's very – he grows up in a rich family. He's aiming for – he he grows up in a rich family, very educated, and becomes dissatisfied with life and then goes on this quest to find out, well, what is going on? I'm dissatisfied with life. What's going on? And he decides, like you said, he's got that hard rule he comes up with early on after he runs into all these teachers. I refuse – to learn anything from anyone again, which I think you're right, also means in his mind, he's not thinking of himself as a teacher either. He thinks, no, teaching other people something is useless. The only way to be enlightened, you have to experience it yourself. And he decides that and he locks into that rule all the way through. And you're right, that closes him off as a teacher. He refuses to be a student. He's respectful of people, but he's like, I'm not learning anything from anybody else anymore. So clearly in his mind, he's also not contributing. I can't teach anybody anything. So he's sort of locked himself off that way. Yeah, and I don't think he's against becoming a student. He does become a student of Vasu David. He learns to be a ferryman, but he doesn't. That's true. But he's definitely not going to take on someone's ideology. He's he's questioning all the social norms, traditional values. So very much in line with, I guess, a lot of the German lit, uh, philosophers and authors that that would have influenced Hermann Hess, the author of Siddhartha. With his son, um, the other thing, actually, that happens in the real Buddha's life. Uh, Buddha renounces, sort of walks away from his family in his normal life, and he's got a son. So he already had a son. And then the son comes back, and the son becomes involved in his life. The son turns out to be a great person, too, and like Buddha does have some relationship with his son. In Siddhartha, it's, it's a little darker. How would you describe what happens with Siddhartha's encounter with his son and how it goes good or bad? Yeah, so, so Siddhartha becomes so attached to his son that 
he he won't discipline the boy. He won't he won't use any type of force. So he's uh, he's very soft with them. He's he's trying to he's trying to just be patient and change him out of just pure goodness. And the boy uh, rejects that and hates it and pushes back more and more. Eventually, the boy gets so fed up that he just takes off. And then Siddhartha, yeah. of course, uh, follows him. And then right as he's reaching the, the town, the town that he lived in for decades, he has an epiphany, sits down, and kind of realizes that it's like a lost cause. You know, he's, he's not going um, to be able to, to prevent his son from suffering. Do you, do you think it's the perspective of the past few years? So I've got a kid, you've got a kid. Do you think it's his, do you think it's the, um, refusing to teaching? Do you think it's his, do you think it's Siddhartha's bad parenting skills and not just skills, also a failure to recognize that his approach to life, the ferryman understands the ferryman sort of gently cajoles like Siddhartha, like, I think you're going down the wrong path with this kid. Maybe you could, you know, and Siddhartha just can't see it. I want the I want the kid to respond this way, so I'm going to teach this kid this way, regardless of what this kid needs. Refuses to see the kid's actual needs. You think it's bad parenting that irritates you about Siddhartha now? I mean, that could be part of it. I I was interested in becoming a teacher the first time I read Siddhartha, and so as I've been rereading it, I've I've been in education in one form or another, pretty much uh, since like the year after I read it. So, so I've always been, I've always been reading it as a lens of a teacher and, and I usually will share quotes with my students and I always, I, well, at least the older students, I, I would always bring up this idea of, can you pass on wisdom? And that would be either a warm up activity or something we messed around with or, or a writing activity. So I've always been in, interested with this idea. I've always realized the paradox in it because Obviously, uh, I wouldn't keep reading this book if there wasn't some influence on me, which would suggest that there is some type of passing of wisdom or experience just through the act of reading. Is there an exact way that, so if you were kind of, something about this inspired you to teach, and it's interesting because the point of the book is his, Siddhartha's big, uh, a, one of his epiphanies is he decides no one can teach anyone anything. You can only experience wisdom and enlightenment. So he goes and seeks information, but he's like, it, it reminds me of that cliche. People say, I can teach you something, but I can't learn it for you. So that's Siddhartha's whole take. We can share information, but you can't, I can't put wisdom in your head. Wisdom has to be through your own experience. You have to develop this yourself through your own life. Did you ever think like as becoming a teacher, like you're setting yourself up for this impossible task of like, I would like these kids to be wiser and learn these things, but I can't make these kids learn this. Yeah. I I think that's the thing that is partially responsible for the high uh, attrition rates of t-shirt teachers is because I think teacher um, teaching is one of those social things where people get into it because they want part of the pay for being a teacher is having the influence and making a difference. And so I think a lot of teachers are willing to sacrifice a a potential career that they could do and they could maybe 
make money out of because they want to help people. And I think that is, um, okay. So I'll, I'll let's say it this way. I, I had a professor and he used to say this maybe every day. And, and it was, it was one of those things. It was so dark, but he's like, are you going to change the system or is the system going to change you? And I just thought that was so awesome that he would just slam us with that every single day. Cause we were mostly naive, youngish. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it's silly. No one teacher is going to change the system without dedicating their whole entire career to politics. Right. So he's pretty much like telling us every day, he's like reminding us, you guys aren't going to change the system. And so I think that's really difficult for teachers to get over. But at some point you kind of have to realize that, I mean, a teacher can have a lot of influence, but the, it's, it's a very limited influence. You see the kids a decent amount. You might see them an hour a day for five days a week. And so that's a lot of opportunities, but the amount of time they spend with their peers, the amount of time they spend with maybe cousins or or other family members, or just all the other, you know, it's just a a very small sliver of their influence. And so, yeah, you kind of have to just be okay with doing your best and, uh, and hope. So, well, yeah, I'll leave it there for now. So the character of the Buddha and Siddhartha we see apparently is super good. Like Siddhartha is also seeking to kind of be good oneself and be enlightened oneself. And then the idea that would radiate to other people and people's experience with the Buddha in the story is that is exactly what happened. In fact, the woman that Siddhartha has sex with and has the son with, she herself is completely changed by hearing these stories about this Buddha. Like this person is special. This person seems to foment change just by their being there. Siddhartha, when he comes in contact with the Buddha, he can see, I get the deal here. The Buddha can't make me change, but boy, this dude is on a whole nother level. Is that the goal of teachers that they're going to try to be so good and model such incredible behavior the way Siddhartha tries to do with his son and it doesn't work that somehow people will just be changed by their very presence. Maybe that's a good goal, but I doubt it. (laughs) Okay. I mean, uh, modeling is huge. It's probably more so as a parent. That's, it's one of those funny paradoxes when you notice all your bad traits coming out of your kid. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm teaching this kid everything, uh, whether I notice or want to like, there's this thing I, um, I will always like with, with my wife and uh, my daughter, I'll ask a question like, do you want this? And then they won't give a clear answer. And so I'll be like, yes or no. Like, do you want it? I don't care if you want it. Just yes or no. And I remember my daughter was probably three years old and she asked like something like, can we go to the park? And I was like, yeah, maybe later. She's like, yes or no. And it's like, dang, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm definitely <laughs> teaching her to be very specific with your words and answers to questions. And I was like, that's good. Okay. I like that. But then there's also the, you know, the things you don't like. Right. Uh, Do you think I can't, this has messed me up because I have this problem a lot. I hear things or read things and I can't remember where it came from. Somebody was talking about, it was probably on a Russell Brand podcast, but there's somebody on the, on a pod. Oh, I, it's not, it's a Tommy Chong and a relative. It might be his son, but they're on a podcast and his son's like, I remember you talking to me about people's journeys and Tommy Chong's like, and you kind of got to accept people for, you kind of have to 
respect people and their problems and what's going on. He's like, you can't just respect, you have to accept it. You have to embrace these people and the journey they're on, which I think is what the ferryman does. So the ferryman, whoever comes in that boat and travels, the ferryman doesn't know what they need when they get there. And the ferryman just, like you said, listens and in some way tries to provide what does that person need right now? On their journey. I don't care what their journey is. I'm not telling them what their journey is. They're on a separate journey for me. They're, whatever their karmic journey, the problems they have and the issues they have and the things that make them who they are, are different than mine. But let me listen and see if I can fill in something. So this accepting who people are, that's ultimately what Siddhartha can't accept about the sun. Siddhartha has a vision for, I have figured out how to get past a lot of suffering. I can just tell my son how to do that. I can help my son avoid all this suffering. And of course, the ferryman's like, you can't do that at all. You, you can't stop other people's suffering. Do you, can you feel that as a parent that you want to, you want the kid not to suffer, but you also know everything the kid's going to be is all going to be a huge part of it is going to be whatever they have to suffer through. Yeah, I probably, I'm probably not thinking about that too often. I, I mean, I would accept that. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing, you know, that we've been saying, you know, I, I can model for her, I can teach her, you know, I, I can, yeah, I can pretty much mold a decent amount of her behavior as she's young. And that can hopefully be preparation for a future life. But I, I'm tempted to say that, uh, there's going to be just a certain amount of dissatisfaction and you and you can call that suffering if you want because I I think it goes back to uh the evolution like we need um if you are an enlightened teenager like why are you going to uh have sex why are you going to do anything you know like there's no like uh you need to have a certain amount of ambition and that's to like keep going regardless, like you can succeed when you're young, you still need to keep going. And I think that's kind of innate to the human experience. That reminds me again, this Hindu. So this book sort of winds together some Taoism and Hinduism and Buddhism and all these things kind of come out. The ferryman always reminds me of somebody who seems very much like they're they're He's in the flow. And again, he's the, he's on the river going back and forth. He just seems to be in the flow. So he listens to people. He does not super judgmental. He just kind of does what he does. And it seems like a nice model. But the Hinduism is the idea there's these different periods. Just like you said, somebody who's young, and they're full of energy. They're in a certain stage. And then they're a householder. And then they're super responsible. And then after that, boom, then you can be an enlightened person later on in your life. But during these stages of your life, even though the end goal is like, hey, you could become a yogi or some guru, that's during these other stages. No, no, you're not focused on that. You're focused on other things at those stages. And that's, a, is that a little bit what you're thinking about being young? You can't be an 80 year old woman in the body of a 15 year old and do the normal things you're supposed to do on your path. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, we, I, I think the hormones and chemicals in our body kind of won't allow it. Like, like you would have to have a very, <laughs> a very interesting upbringing to be in that mental state where you're willing to be abstinent from all the fun things about being young or be in such a, such an environment where th there's just no, uh, 
alternatives or something like that. Maybe yeah, maybe yeah. I, it it would be interesting. What's the what's the psychological differences between these? Let, let's say like Amish people that grow up in a really isolated community. Are they any psychologically different than than your average uh, young man or young woman anywhere else in the world? I I would be tempted to say no. Maybe they're not experiencing some of the negative effects of social media. So maybe they would be on average a little bit better, but. Uh, I, I feel like there's this period where you're supposed to be able to make bad decisions. So again, Siddhartha, when he goes off on his bad decision early on, he's a young privileged child. And then he immediately goes into this path on enlightenment. But then there's also this period in this book where he comes involved basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or really business and a consort and pleasure. So he's got all the luxuries. And I don't. he doesn't seem to regret it at the end of that quest because he just kind of dumps it all at the end. Oh, this isn't going to get me anywhere. I've had enough of this. I'm just going to let this all go. So he just lets it all go. But you can't let it go and have whatever that wise moment was where he decided, oh, this isn't for me if you didn't make the quote-unquote bad decisions, or you didn't spend all that time spinning your wheels, what years later you decide, oh, that was a huge waste. You could have never had that epiphany early unless you do what Siddhartha says you shouldn't do, which is somebody just tells you not to. So that's the Amish path is somebody just tells you not to. Don't break these rules. Don't sin in these ways because it's bad for you. And some kids go, okay, I'll never do that. And they never do. And other, but clearly uh, the Amish society has this rumspringa period where they let these kids do all the things they're not supposed to do because even they must recognize you need to choose this. We can't just tell you to follow these rules and you follow them your whole life. There's a chance you fall off at some point. It can't just be us telling you things. So even they have this little window where they're like, you need to feel that these things are unsatisfying. You need to have your Siddhartha moment where you get into business and have a lot of sex and do the Kama Sutra and eat everything you want and have all the things so then you can realize at the end, oh, that's not very satisfying. It's dissatisfying. Yeah, and even in, in, and even if we looked at a different uh, society, I think I think there would still be competition among young people. So uh, being the best at whatever fishing, um, farming, whatever you know, you know, whatever the community does, there is going to be that competition. Uh, the, the young people are going to be competing for mates. You know, the, the, the young ladies are going to be competing in some way for the, you know, the hot young man and the hot young men are going to be competing for the hot, the hot young ladies. There is a pitch in. So this is interesting. There is a and in this book, he eventually abandons. There's a period where he's he gets he finds the hot young lady, a consort, and then kind of he's like, we don't really love each other. Like, what do we feel for each other? So he has these complicated sexual romantic feelings for this one woman. And that's a person he has the kid with what you're talking about that, that biological need. I feel like the religions kind of say, Hey, you need to channel that you have these urges. The urges sometimes are regarded as sins and terrible, but a lot of times it's just like, you need to channel that into it needs to be channeled properly. So into a family or into healthy, ethical, sexual choices, whatever it happens to be, you need to channel that. Uh, is that what is that what this stuff is for, that we have these biological urges and these hormones and they're animalistic and they're primal and they might lead you to just do whatever you want. 
but you need to follow these rules or think about this stuff over time to try to learn how to manage this energy in your body. I would say it's more just that it's all kind of interconnected. For So I think religions are very much naturally selected to meet the needs of humans. So like, like, um, like Mormons tend to get married really young. Well, that's a really good uh, solution for being abstinent until you're married. Well, you get married super right. young. And, uh, you know, so it seems to work. It seems to work for them. I, and we could look at other examples. Um, I don't really know as much about Islam, but I, I'm sure we could. And I don't know as much about, about Hinduism and so, some of the other big religions around the world. But, yeah, they, I think for the most part, large groups of people are kind of selecting the religions based on how they're providing basic human needs. And so I kind of think that's... And then, of course, you get uh, whether a religion is trying to convert others. I think I think that's the big game changer why you get Islam and, and maybe uh, Christianity kind of uh, dominating the planet. They're competing, Christianity and Islam competing to see who's the better at fishing for souls. Well, yeah, and but but they also have this aspect of like they like for instance, um, Jewish people aren't trying to convert anyone. You know, Jewish people are chosen and they're they're just worried about like doing their responsibility. They don't, they're not that really that concerned with uh, like saving the other 8 billion people's souls. Whereas Christianity, there is a big part of it. And, and I think this kind of goes back to, to that natural selection. If part of your religion is, is converting other people, then your religion is going to be more likely to grow. And then you have other factors. Uh, If part of your religion is being peaceful and helping other people, then that's, probably good too. So that's, you know, so, so I think Christianity kind of just has naturally been selected and it's along with having been in the right place at the right time, probably several different times throughout history. So that's, that's how I would, that's, I think that approach uh, is, uh, has, has, has a lot of uh, explanation causal explanation for me. Can I ask, so yeah. is it, so in this case, we're talking about the practices of religion or the belief systems in religion, the reading the book, I thought it was interesting. How many years have you done this thing? Or maybe this is the first year where you set up an activity or some practice relating to something happening in that chapter or something overall in the book. You know, like, let's try this every day. You read a chapter and you try to do this thing. Where did you, why did you come up with this practice idea? I'm, I'm not sure. I actually didn't do a very good job of doing that this year either. I, Oh, as in you didn't follow the ones I, you'd written down. You're like, I, I didn't, didn't I day. didn't, I did a couple of them actually. So, uh, I can't I, I just randomly came up with it because I was setting up a structure for other people to join me with like a book club. And so I just happened to be writing and just kind of got carried away and I thought that'd be kind of cool. And in a couple of the I was already planning on doing some fasting that like for um in uh I was doing fasting mim- mim- mimicking diet it's like a week long thing where you only eat about 800 calories a day and it's supposed to put you in a fasting state so anyway so so I was planning on doing that and I was like oh I'll see if anyone else wants to do that and then I kind of started messing around I was like oh well, maybe we could do some other things kind of based off each chapter so do you think so you did some of them yeah. do you think did you hear did anybody try any of them no the but uh I don't not that I know of did you uh, I was, 
I mean, I, th- I thought about it. I thought it was interesting, but then I'm like, I don't want to add on the extra. I'm already trying to read a chapter a day. So I'm like, I don't want to add on an extra layer of like a should every day I'm supposed to do. So I did not try it, but I thought it was an interesting concept. Yeah. I think maybe I'll try and do, I think there was 12 activities or maybe I left, I left one off. So, so maybe I'll try and do them all o- over the course of the year. Give me like a month for per how so uh, this is an interesting thing to add on to the reading how do you not get bored personally how do you not get bored reading this book all the time and i'm curious this may relate all the way back to the beginning of this conversation where you said i'm almost to the point where i'm like i don't know if i want to read this next year so you're not bored with it but there's something dissatisfying about the book how do you not get tired reading this book all the time and what what has happened now that you're like i don't know maybe i'd give it a rest for a year yeah, maybe, maybe it's my personality. I I'm I definitely remember I probably watched The Matrix maybe close to ten at least ten if not twenty times. So like that's something like I used to watch The okay. Matrix every year. I used to um you know growing up you know you watch your favorite movies just over and over again. So I think I I'm as far as I would rather just go with something I know is good versus. So like exploit, I'd rather exploit the stuff that I know is good versus exploring for something that could be good. So that's, so that is maybe partially part of it. I mean, I like the story. It's short, it's easy to read. And yes. And like, and like I said, it was kind of a ritual. It kind of gets me um, like a reset, start the new year type of thing. So, but I think my main reason for not wanting to read it next year, or maybe I'll read, maybe I'll take five years is I, I think I might benefit from having some space from it and coming back to it where, because um, it's kind of always, yeah, I guess if you read it every year, especially if you read a chapter a day, it's, it occupies a lot of your thinking. And so I've been maybe the last two or three years, I've been slowly going back and rereading all of my favorite books. And so I've read, this year, I'm planning to be a little more aggressive about it. So I've already maybe done like five in the last few weeks. And I think I'd like to just, would just rather spend more time rereading some, some of those books that I haven't read for 10 years or something and just uh, wait and just have, have, you know, just have some more time and come back to Siddhartha. Okay, so the thing that leads you kind of to the, your personality that leads you to like reading and rereading and rereading or rewatching and rewatching, uh, you're like, there's all this other stuff that also nostalgia and memory that I could read and not just focus on this one thing. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and even just, I mean, like, you know, the classics, you, you can pretty much rely on the classics. They've been, they've been selected over hundreds or thousands of years. Whereas like reading something new, I mean, I do read new stuff, uh, mostly probably nonfiction. But yeah, it's kind of like a crapshoot. Right. Uh, I find going back and rereading, not every year, uh, but I don't think it's been, uh, again, two to three years when I read Siddhartha for the first time and then rereading it now. And I'm like, I under- I remembered the arc of the story, but I didn't remember I felt like I hadn't even read it before. Like it was all new after just a few years away from it. And that's my experience going back. Oh, there's this book I loved when I was in college. And then I read it 20 years later and I'm like, I didn't remember anything about this book. I'm having a completely different experience with it. Is that the experience you have? Like if you watched the matrix again, do you think you would still is part of the joy 
pulling new stuff out of it? Or is it the joy of seeing things you really love, like the Greeks watching Oedipus Rex, and we all know everything that happens from beginning to end, and yet we want to feel that catharsis, that emotional experience of seeing that story unfold. So do you get new stuff? Or is it like an emotional thing you get of watching a story you know is going to go this way? I would say the the things that I continue to consume, I think it's more the first that that you said. You're kind of seeing some something new or different. Also, you're I'm typically listening to a book and typically non so I'm I'm typically listening to like at least one non nonfiction book and then those I can uh digest fairly fast because I'm listening a lot of the day when I don't need to have my full attention. And uh, so it's interesting, like whatever I'll be, whatever I'll have been listening to recently, how it pairs with like rewatching the matrix. So that's, so that's probably the part that I find interesting in where with that said, I haven't rewatched the matrix since the last movie came out. I did go back and watch the trilogy, but but just, but yeah, so like when you, what am I listening to now? I'm listening, uh, I just listened to uh, a book on capitalism and, free, and freedom by Milton Friedman. So like I, I would be shocked if I didn't notice something different about The Matrix, if I was to rewatch it today, that has to do with, okay. the, or, and, and like even stuff I know, like, like Neo's really into um, being in control of his life. So I guarantee I, I would see something about Neo's individualism and this idea that he has control over his body. And I would probably tie that into something that Milton Friedman is talking about with <laughs> political freedom or, or, or economic freedom. Right. Uh, your interest, Siddhartha is, uh, was part of a spiritual in some ways for Westerners, part of some spiritual journey, I think I either it was in this introduction or other introductions where the people who love the book are like, eh, where kind of hippy dippy people out of the 1960s are like, this is the book for me. Kind of like in the way they might react to the Matrix. Look at this individual who bucks the system and is willing to see the truth. And like, that's what we're doing. We're like, we're like breaking from the culture. We're counterculture. We're breaking from it. Uh, and leads them on some spiritual journey, if not a religious journey. Has this book ever sent you to learn more about Taoism or Hinduism or Buddhism deeply where you think, oh, maybe these things have something to teach me? Or has this book itself just been sort of its impact on you as just the book, not so much these wider religious traditions? So definitely reading it slower, like I was saying, like reading a chapter a day, you definitely have a lot more time to think about and look up. So the last couple of years, I've definitely looked up more into Hinduism. And I also listened to some things from, from Alan Watts and, and a couple other, the gurus. And, uh, so a limited amount previously. No, I, I, I knew very basics about Hinduism and Buddhism that made me comprehend what's going on. Right. And, uh, yeah. So, so enough to understand the plot yes. and characters and the things happening in the book. Yeah. And, and I think I mentioned this last time I talked to you or at least some, sometime that I was talking to you, whereas Siddhartha seems so much more Hindu to me than I would have considered. I, you know, I think, I think the first time I read it, I probably would have thought this is Buddhism. And then now, right. and then now I see that, uh, that it's, 
very much he like he starts off a Hindu, so it makes sense he should be more Hindu. But just like his his ideas fit into Hinduism so much better. Like the self-realization and and I mean I mean he's clearly not Buddhist. Like Siddhartha uh right. he rejects the Buddhist teaching. That's you should be your his, first hint. His best friend. Yes. His best friend becomes a Buddhist monk. Yes. He specifically does not. Yes. So there's clearly what uh, what do you think though? Is would what would you consider Siddhartha more Hindu or I mean he clear he's clearly a Westerner as well or or do you think it's better to just consider him a Westerner that likes Hinduism or likes Eastern philosophy? I think it's hard because just like you said, a little bit of biographical. I read a couple introductions about Hess, and so they're only like ten pages each. Uh, but his experience sort of mirroring some of this stuff where he was exposed with his dad's international work, he was exposed to these religions, these philosophies, and these countries at an early age. And so it's sort of in his, he's clearly a Westerner, and yet this stuff sort of infiltrated his brain. And so that's what the book feels like. It feels like a Westerner, honestly and and caringly and lovingly sort of sucked up some of these things and had this idea Um yeah, it feels like a Western book, not something does the Buddhism is in there. The Hinduism is in there. I think with the ferryman, um, I think, I think there's, I, I can't help but see there's some flow and there's some things, things that can't be spoken, but Siddhartha from beginning to end, again, he rejects the Buddha. He wants to become enlightened. That is his goal. He wants to become enlightened. And there is a hard push in Buddhism. I don't, I don't think this is in Hinduism, you're, you seek enlightenment. In Buddhism, they're like, if you're seeking enlightenment, you can't get it. So that's very, the Zen Buddhists are very clear about that. If you want this enlightenment, that is the number one way you will not get it. So, and their thing about the metaphor about the finger points to the moon. You're focusing on, Zen Buddhism is the finger. It's pointing at the moon. If you over fixate on that, if you're really fixated on wanting the thing, you're going to lose the thing. So I think, I don't, I don't know. At the end, is Siddhartha enlightened? Uh, that's clearly what he's seeking, and that seems very Hindu, as opposed to Buddha, which might be concerned with slowly letting things go. You're slowly letting things go and trying to help yourself see the moment clearly, but you can't seek the thing at the end of the – you don't seek the thing at the end of the rainbow. You just moment to moment try to get clearer and clearer, and then you would find yourself in nirvana at some point where you are truly clear about the moment. The moment is clear for you. You have clear thinking and – you see exactly what's happening. I don't know. That's a long rambling answer, but yeah. And so I, Siddhartha finds a satisfying answer and maybe that's what enlightenment is at some point in your life. Like you <laughs> just have a satisfying enough answer. There's a, it reminds, there's this one philosopher who bangs on and on. He has this theory that, um, all these seeking for truth, um, uh, he just talks about his closing the loop. It's, I think he calls it closure. But he says, anytime you want to have an argument about something or anytime you want to discuss something or anytime you want to figure out a worldview or anytime you want to figure out how the universe works, at some point, you're going to have to cut off other stuff. You're, you're going to know you're closing it artificially to make the argument work. So for us to be able to talk about something, for us to be able to decide something, we just have to close it. We will arbitrarily decide to close it knowing that there's still other stuff out there. So it's kind of reminds me of what people kind of decide. 
life is totally un- life is uncertain and unknowable and our tiny little brains can't fathom everything all the connections that are going on so we can't ever see fully the big picture so at some point we just decide well this big picture sounds pretty good for this moment and so i'm just going to i'm going to close the loop there's all this other stuff out there but i'm going to go ahead and close the the little bubbles closed now and i can pop it later on if i want to but you're right you just decide well this answer is good enough this is a good enough answer yeah, so let's let's talk about the ending a little bit. What do you think of the ending? Does okay. did did Govinda become enlightened? So this is our problem. You so before we started, we're like, uh, man, we should have done this a month ago. Okay, yeah. Uh, so okay, three weeks I, ago. So I will refresh it. you. Um, Govinda is just like grilling okay. Siddhartha about teach me something, teach me something, and he's telling him all this stuff, and it sounds like nonsense, and he doesn't understand it. And then Siddhartha finally uh, tells him tells him to kiss him on the forehead or, or something along those lines. And when Govinda kisses him on the forehead, all of a sudden he sees uh, a thousand or ten thousand faces in Siddhartha. And so it seems to have it appears that Govinda had very similar, if not the same, experience that Siddhartha had when he was was finally getting his enlightenment, whereas seeing that the the world is is always changing and yeah, I guess, yeah, the, there's, a, there's a lot of fixation uh, throughout the entire book on whether there's an I or a you and then whether that's an illusion and what does that mean? And you're right. So he has this fantastic vision where he's right. See Siddhartha, Siddhartha is all people and all people are one and there's no I and mm-hmm. you and everything's together, which again, Hindu about this idea that there's this fundamental there's this fundamental material. We are all the same thing. We are all together. There is no separation between I and you. They, Siddhartha bangs on that a lot about trying to get rid. In fact, he spends, he goes down the wrong road. He tries to get rid of his I. I don't want to be I. And he realizes this is a whole problem. This isn't going to get me where I want to go. But he does realize that there's no separation between I and you. Uh, so I think he has that moment. Buddha sits under the tree for X number of days or whatever, and then has the enlightenment. So that happens. And then Buddha has the enlightenment, goes and talks to the first students, his first people come around and like, so what'd you learn? He tells them and boom, they're instantly enlightened. So clearly some people wander for decades and then have this epiphany and other people come and sit down with people and say, I had this epiphany, this happened. And then whatever triggers you to understand, oh, wow, that's true. So yeah, it's, I think it's possible that I think Govinda had a legitimate, like, boom, that was his thing. Just, just like you mentioned that Siddhartha had that on his own, that Govinda got it by kissing Siddhartha's forehead or listening to Siddhartha tell him the stuff in that moment he had his epiphany. So did, did Siddhartha transfer wisdom to Govinda? Uh, well, okay, I want to fall back on your ferryman. Yeah. If the ferryman, and the ferryman has a different thing. The ferryman finishes up at one point, he realizes Siddhartha got it, and that I'm kind of done with this period, and he just wanders into the forest, and that's it. You never see the ferryman again. He's just gone. Uh, so, I don't know. In that, did did the fer- I feel like the ferryman is a good model. Listening, everyone's on a different journey. All these I's and U's, we're all unified, but we're also not unified. They're like two sides of the same coin. 
Everything is together, unitive, but everything is separate. And those two things are true simultaneously all the time. So you recognize that I have no separation between me and you. We're all the same star stuff. We're all the same material. We're just all the same. It's the same universe. It's one big thing. All separations are artificial. On the other hand, like the ferryman, I'm I, you are you, you're saying things, I need to listen, I'm saying things, you need to listen, we're trying to help each other along in this weird universe. If we were all together, then we would do what some of these ascetics do, which is they sit stone still and they just die. I mean, what's that's so for enlightenment, some people it's like, there's no me anymore. So I don't need to feed the me or water the me, or I don't need to talk to you because we're all one thing, right? So why spend any time talking to anybody or doing anything? Because whoop, it's all one unified reality. What I do doesn't matter. Nothing. It's all one thing. It'll all work out the way it's supposed to. No, the other side's there too. So I think the ferryman seems to have this great wisdom, but the ferryman, just like you said, you liked about him. He continues to interact with the world. He has a job. He continues to do his job. He continues to listen to people. When people come, he shows them hospitality. At the same time as he clearly probably knows, he clearly is also probably enlightened. Oh, yeah, we're all one. And this is all one big universe. And uh, But I have this job to do. So I do the job. I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do. I just do this job. So I, that's a rambling answer to uh, can you impart wisdom? What is the point of that wisdom at the end of the day? If Govinda has realized there is no I in you and everything is unified. Well, that's all well and good. But after a while, you're still going to have to get up and piss behind the tree. I mean, you're still alive. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You're still in this body. You go, you're go. you still Govinda. So now you're not Govinda, but in a little while, you're going to have to eat something or something's going to hit you on the head or you're going to fall asleep or you're going to get the flu. You're still Govinda. So I don't know. I think it's two simultaneous realities. I think Govinda got the, wow, we're all one and all faces are one and this multiplicitous universe. But, you know, like the ferryman, we got to get up the next morning and go out to the boat, right? And like keep moving people across the river. And when is it, so one of Siddhartha's things too is he, he, he loves everyone. He loves, he loves all the rocks. And his explanation is, is not because they are going to become Buddha. He's he, he's saying they already are. Like he's saying everything is. And so once he has that understanding, then he can love everything. And so and so. It does appear to me that he's able to pass some some of that on to Govinda somehow, because Govinda is really struggling with that idea. Yes. Which kind of puts a whole paradox in Siddhartha's whole life. Tell me more. Well, he's, he's been living this life, experiencing life for himself, doing everything for himself because he can't get, he can't magically become enlightened. The Buddha can't just magically enlighten him. He eventually, he abandons, he allows his son to leave and doesn't doesn't appear to go back, check on him, do anything for him at all. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, what's going to happen to Siddhartha after that when he realizes that he just he just transferred with if or if if he did if he transferred wisdom to Govinda, then then what is like what does that say about his whole life? 
well, he had this hard and fast rule that he fixated on and he really fixated on it and he added all kinds of nuance to it. But like, you cannot teach people things. I cannot teach you wisdom. I cannot enlighten. I cannot teach you enlightenment. It's not possible. It can't happen. Uh, I just think human society shows that that's just not true. So the pitch by, I've listened to these podcasts, these Theravadan Buddhist monks, and in the gentlest possible way, I think their explanation is, as again, as they're saying, there are these visions of nirvana as a supernatural plane. This is a place, uh, nirvana is someplace else. But their pitch is, well, just here now. The Buddha just says it's here, it just whatever's here now is here now, and that's it, and it's here now. So whatever happens in the human where they kind of accept everything, not just the good, but also the profoundly evil. And to love the profoundly evil or the profoundly broken or to love the terrors of the world, to love the whole world means accepting all the bad stuff. If you carve anything off, you're not really accepting everything. So I don't know. I think I think this message that maybe Siddhartha is enlightened when Siddhartha loves everything. Just by accepting what is there loves everything. I don't know. Is that a satisfying conclusion to you? Is that a satisfying lesson at the end to you? Maybe. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I think I was quite confused with the ending. Even maybe the first couple times I read it. Like I, I didn't know yeah. what to make of it. And uh, I think with my ideas now, it doesn't really – like I don't even really care that much as far as uh, – <laughs> I I see the ending as just a, a fairy tale. I don't I don't really see it being a, a real yeah. ending. It just and let me tie it to to a different idea. I remember having a conversation with a cousin about drug addiction, and he was super strict at the time about like you can't help anyone. Everyone has to hit rock bottom, whatever they need to do it for, for uh, themselves. There's no helping a drug addict. And, and I probably agree with him more than I did at the time, but I was, I was just like, that's such a weak cop out to not even try and help someone. And not that in, and like, and like I said, I, I probably agree with him a lot more now than when I had this conversation with him, maybe a decade ago, but the, I mean, someone that's maybe someone that's a drug addict that's decisions over 99% of the human population uh, completely disagree with, cannot relate with. They like, I have no idea the amount of suffering or the amount of struggles that they go through. And I have no idea what they feel like when they're not on drugs. And I have no idea what they feel like when they're on drugs. And so I do think there's things people can do to help. I mean, like if, if you look at rehab, rehab uh, statistics are not good. I think like 15 to 20% would be a good rehab program. And that's kind of, uh, that's not very good for, you know, and by, you know, by most term, standards. <coughs> the long-term AA is touted also because some people have a lot of success with AA, but AA is wildly unsuccessful if we follow the numbers. Long-term, AA is these people coming to these meetings every day trying to deal with this is not, I think the biggest success rate they found is people. They were talking people who are hooked on heroin um, given whatever the medicinal version of is living in, a, they had them living in these communal areas and they give them daily some small level 
of a medicinal level of this drug so they can function. Anything else to ask people who've been addicted to heroin or super extreme medication and to think that their body can read the normal person with their normal level of self-control and their ability to deal with pain can cope with that is just clearly it's just doesn't happen. I mean, it demands a lot of just like you said, you don't know what they feel like when they're on the drug, how good it is. And you do not know how it feels when they are not on the drug, how bad it feels. And to ask the normal human being, well, I'm just going to go cold turkey or for a few months, I'll take a little bit, but then I'll stop. Like, that's hard. I don't know. Yeah. So, so back to Siddhartha. So I I feel like Siddhartha is that guy that's like, I can't help a drug addict. The drug addicts on on their own, just like me. And although I think that's, that's not too far off from the truth, but then you just, then you're just in a world where you have a bunch of people finning, finning for uh, themselves struggling where we don't. We haven't quite fi- figured out the addiction problem yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some methods that are much better in the future. And the only way you're going to establish those and figure those out is by trying to help people. And so that that's probably my biggest criticism of Siddhartha, is that he's he's way too strict and neglectful. Okay, so you're so you're enlightened. You figured out life, but you live out in the wilderness practically alone. And you just ferry people across a river. I don't know. Yeah, part of me just seems that's a bit wasteful. Uh, so that it's interesting. I've been reading. I'm reading a book about monks, and I've been looking at the rule of Benedict. And so at the very basic of it, Benedict provides some time element. He says you need X amount of time for prayer in a day. You need X amount of time to do work in a day. So you have to work. I mean, we got to make this monastery run. And they need X amount of time for reading. You should be doing holy reading, contemplative reading. Um, But he says those three things, you have to make sure those don't eat up all your time because there's two other things that are crucial. One is hospitality to strangers. So at your monastery, you have to welcome strangers in and you have to make sure your tight little schedule of reading, praying, and working doesn't interfere with this very important job you have to welcome these strangers in. And in addition, you have to make time for and make sure all these other things don't crowd out. They need to help the people around you. So the other brothers and sisters who are there, you have to be ready to help them when they need help. So that's probably the part. Siddhartha, like, I think you're right. If I go back and reread this next time, I think he is kind to he's kind in his head to people, but he is clearly holding himself at a distance and he's trying to throw himself into these experiences. He throws them. What can I learn from this person? What can I learn from the Buddha? What can I learn from the consort? What can I learn from working in business? What can I learn so I can be enlightened? He is very fixated on himself very much so. And doesn't just leave, it doesn't have to be your whole life, but that space of time for hospitality to people you don't know and caring for the people you do know. Like that, no matter how big your quest for enlightenment becomes, you have to do what the ferryman does. You have to keep providing a service. And when people come, you feed people when they show up and you're nice to people when they're around you. You have to, whatever that kindness and niceness is, regardless of how enlightened you've become, what's the advantage? Like, what is the, but I feel the bigger question also is if you become enlightened, do you have some responsibility to share that knowledge? I would argue one possibility is you don't. Like the ferryman, 
you have to maintain hospitality to strangers and the care for the people around you, you are not responsible for sharing the information that you've learned. Because I think Siddharth is also right. You can't teach that. It's like a teacher who like goes every day and they lose their mission because they're focused on changing kids' minds. I want these kids to be wiser and smarter. So they get really frustrated because first of all, they can't do that. It's not, as you said, it's not possible to change someone's mind for them or teach someone something. They, they have to learn it and they just forget. No, your real job is the only thing you're required to do is go and do your job, teach them things, just be nice to them, you know? Just be nice and care for the people around you. I think that's all Tolstoy. You talked about Tolstoy earlier. We've talked about Tolstoy. His pitch is these peasants got it right. They know how to deal with dead bodies. They know how to deal with grieving. And they just know how to care for each other. They know how to work and care for each other. And he's like, I think that's all this is. Things just love, man. Just love. I mean, that's Tolstoy throws up his, he's a cranky old intellectual and he never really lives his, he never really lives this new ethos he gets from the peasants, but it's just love, man, which kind of is like at Siddhartha at the end. He's like, oh, you got to just love everything. Like it sounds stupid, but I don't know. Is that? So so this would be a example of, so I'm listening to a book right now called The Good Life. And it's it's primarily, it's the two guys that run the Harvard study, the longitudinal study that's been going on for 80 something years. And then they're okay. tying in some other studies that, that and so they're, their main idea is that good relationships is the number one principle to being happy in life. And, and they, and they don't mean like, like hedonic happiness, you know, they mean like all around, like overall well being, mental health, physical. And so, yeah. yeah, it's very possible that the interactions of, of being a ferryman, it's very possible that just those interactions alone are providing a lot of psychological, and physical benefit to Siddhartha and Vasudevid. Yes. And so maybe, maybe they're having a lot more influence than I'm giving them credit for because we don't obviously get to see their day to day life over. I mean, they're, they're there for decades. Vasudevid is there for probably at least, I'm probably 30 years, at least, if not much longer. Right, because we don't. I mean, yes. he's already a ferryman when we meet yes. him. So who knows how long he was ferrying before then? Yeah. And so he, even Siddhartha, I think uh, Siddhartha must have been there for at least probably 20, 20 years too. So maybe, so maybe they're doing a lot more than I'm giving them credit for. But, but I think going back to like why I'm a little disappointed in Siddhartha, yeah, is he? I think he could do a little bit more. I think he was too impatient or with with his friend Govinda. Almost like he's just trying to get rid of him. Uh, you get that. He's very happy. He's a little bit, oh no, you're going when Govinda says, dude, this Buddha is the real deal. I'm going to go do his thing. And Sid, yeah, Siddhartha is kind of like, just lets him go. And right, uh, yeah, doesn't visit. His dad asks him one thing and I... Double check this. Siddhartha doesn't promise this in the beginning, but his dad says, will you come back when he lets it, when he finally regretfully, painfully is letting his son go. He's like, you're going to go off and disappear. Will you come back? Siddhartha does not come back. So exactly as you said, he cuts these relationships. These relationships are temporary. His relationship with the woman who fathers his son, his relationship with his son there. He kind of cuts these loose on his quest to go become enlightened. 
I mean, I know people like that. And I am sometimes like that too, where you decide to go off on some path and you have to, some relationships don't follow along with you. So on the other side of the coin, well, sometimes if you feel a calling to go do something and some people don't support it, they don't want to go along with you, then you let them go. But you're right. He's dismissive of these connections. And I think he regrets it in the, I don't know, maybe he doesn't. He seems like he could possibly, he definitely regrets his relationship with his son. I think he regrets the fact that when the woman, the consort comes back and she's old and sickly, he feels these tremendous feelings for her and maybe has some regret about the fact that, well, I just decided to wander away from the world and then I was gone and that was fine. Siddhartha just wanders away from people throughout the whole book. Yeah, and so I think a lot of the downfalls in Siddhartha are downfalls in Herman Hess, the author. So he he had a lot of mental illness throughout his life. He did have a suicide attempt as a young boy. His mother also had some fairly significant like mental health issues. And so I guess she was a very difficult mother. And then he, he eventually, I think he was maybe divorced twice or, or divorced once, but uh, he kind of abandoned his kids. His, his first wife that he has kids with has like a mental breakdown and ends up in an institution. And then he ends up in the Swiss Alps and he lives his life in solitude, he paints and he writes letters and he writes books. And so it seems like he's just kind of a, not a very nice person to be around, or at least not a very good person to be around. And he just kind of spends a lot of his time alone, just doing his own thing. So I, I think a lot of Siddhartha's downfalls are actually probably Herman Hesse's downfalls. Like he has these ideals. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I have one Wattsian pitch. So Alan Watts pulling from Hinduism through Vedanta, the Western version of Hinduism. His big pitch is always, again, he's like a kind of like this very last epiphany where it's he's saying uh, Siddhartha was the fish. Siddhartha was the man. Siddhartha was the woman. Siddhartha was the murderer stabbing someone to death with a knife. All the things. The, the the pitch by Hinduism is the universe is God pretending not to be God. This is how Alan Watts describes in his metaphor. God gets bored being God. So God is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing. So God says, I'm going to play a game or I'm going to play hide and seek with myself. I'm going to forget I'm God. So God creates the universe and we all forget we're God. And then eventually we remember we're God and the whole cycle ends and God's like, oh, look, that was really fun. And then God goes through a period of like, I'm God again. And then God, the universe goes... I'm bored again. This is boring. It's boring knowing everything. So I'm going to pretend I don't know I'm God again. So in that metaphor, the person like Herman Hess, that's just God being Herman Hess because it's fun being Herman Hess. And like God thinks it's fun being the ferryman. And so one metaphor is like all these things. They're all okay. So the person that uses their knowledge and creates a great movement is okay. Like the Buddha is great. The Buddha is great. Everyone who meets the Buddha says the Buddha is great in this book. But the ferryman, clearly, like, we love, you love the ferry. You're like, I think he's my favorite character in the book now. All the ferryman does is run people back and forth. He seems very wise and thoughtful and a good listener. So we're all just playing these roles in this gigantic universe and that all the roles are okay. Even though they don't feel okay, Hitler doesn't really feel that great. Uh, You know, Jack the Ripper doesn't really feel that great, but it's it's all, if we're all just God, in some sense, it's all to be accepted and loved. It doesn't mean you don't put the person in jail or you don't kill someone who's trying to defend you, but it's all part of 
everything, right? Does that sell? Are you like, oh, I'm fine with everything now? Now, from Alan Watts' point of view, have I sold you on Alan Watts' point of view? And like, okay, okay, so so that's that's Alan Watts's personal opinion, or that's his interpretation of Hinduism. I don't think it's always. He will talk about things. In that respect, he's just philosophizing. And a lot of that comes from Hinduism, where Hinduism says, this is all the universe. We're all God pretending not to be God. That's what all this is. It's all everything you see in your normal conventional world, it's just God pretending not to be God. This is all one thing. We're just pretending it's not. That's the game. So I don't know specifically if Hinduism calls it that, but Alan Watts likes to talk about it in his metaphor. Well, it's a game. It's a, it's a game, God pretending not to be God. So I don't know if that's Hinduism. Let's just, that is definitely an Alan Watts mouth. Okay. Mushing all his Christianity and Zen Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism together in his brain and coming up with something. Yeah. Maybe, uh, Her, Herman Hess might, might like that idea. He was, he wasn't an atheist. He was, he definitely had very much his, uh, his, uh, his family were, I think the right word is pious. They were uh, they were missionaries from yeah Switzerland like German area and uh, yeah so they so they're a very strict sect of Christianity so he's he definitely had that influence and that partially is why he rejects traditional norms and, and all that yeah so so he definitely has that influence so I think I think Herman Hess would would actually like that and that probably. I have looked up to see if Alan Watts talked about her, her Herman Hesse Siddhartha. I, I, I couldn't oh, quite find yeah. it. You know, I couldn't quite find anything, at least from doing Google searches, but it would, uh, I don't know. I think her, I, I, I mean, I think, uh, Alan Watts would probably, pro- probably like Siddhartha. So that I, you've sold me. I like the ferryman um, a lot. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm sold that that is if you had to model yourself after someone, the person who is the most I think it's cl- the person who's the most centered in the book. So there's the there's the Buddha, so the Buddha is clearly centered. Um and the Buddha even does the same thing the ferryman does. Siddhartha says all this stuff, I'm blah 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 and blah 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 and Buddha has one piece of advice for him and he gives it kindly, but like I think you're overthinking this. I think you're overthinking this, which is really what Siddhartha figures out when he learns ferryman teach me the ferryman's whole thing is this is not about thinking about stuff. This is just about doing stuff, sitting around and philosophizing about enlightenment. So the Buddha needles him with that. I think you're overthinking. I think you're thinking too much about this. Uh, So maybe the, I don't know, maybe that was the, I like the Buddha and the, I like all the characters, but the Buddha and the ferryman, I think are both presented as sort of unassailable characters. I don't think the ferryman seems like there's a lot to criticize about him. And I don't think there's a ton. It seems to criticize about the Buddha They're kind of presented as these two very wise characters in the book. Yeah. Okay. So how about this, uh, fight club interpretation? <laughs> so, okay. so Govinda, I'm almost positive. It it's, I think he's called the shadow. If not the first sentence, like within the first paragraph or like first page. So very early on in the story, Govinda is called Siddhartha's shadow. Yeah. And then he's he's referenced as the shadow at least one other time, probably, if if not two. And so if you if you want to connect that with maybe Nietzsche, Nietzsche, sorry, if if you want to connect that with Nietzsche, so maybe we should be looking at the story as Siddhartha and Govinda being one. 
Oh, that isn't that's an interesting idea. I would have to like reread the book specifically looking uh, at I would that. have to. Yes. Yeah. So not Great. so not like that's not, exactly not like one as in the movie one. Like they're not Govinda's not an imaginary Siddhartha. <laughs> but Govinda <laughs> right, right, right. and Siddhartha are both are both one. Or maybe like the reader or us, you know, like we are we are Siddhartha and Govinda. We're the one that's following you know, following the path, trying everything we can, but then we're also the one that's rejecting everything we possibly can. And then maybe we end up, we end up as one or something at the end. 